Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What say you, Richard Ellen Murdoch? Are you guilty or not guilty of the felonies wherein you stand and die? Not guilty. How shall you be tried? By God and my country. The exact time when Paul and Maggie Murdoch were murdered. At the end of the investigation, it was obvious. I'm not here to work with them, okay? And the whole point is to have this not fall in the wrong hands. This case is unique, it's unprecedented in South Carolina history. Carolina, the Murdochs, Murders, Money, and Mystery. We are back with you. I'm Ann Emerson. I'm here with our exclusive legal analyst, Charlie Condon, also South Carolina's former general, as well as the executive producer here, Drew Tripp. We've got Max Harrison. We are at the ABC, uh, WCIV studios here, Channel 4 Studios in Charleston, uh, filming this live for you. And Max is, again, doing all of the production work back there, um, along with his, um, the photojournalist, Sam Griswold, who was on location with us for six weeks. Six weeks. So now we're starting to be able to sift through not only all of your questions, which we have been seriously looking at and trying to, you know, um, kind of figure out what we can answer is part of it, but also just trying to take a minute and a breath to kind of figure out what just happened here. So I guess, Charlie, what just happened here? We just had six weeks in Walterboro with one of the most extraordinary trials of our lifetime. Certainly, um, certainly. Have you had a chance to start thinking about what you just saw? Still need some more time to process, but I do think it's it was a watershed event for a number of different reasons, and um, I do think it's going to reverberate in South Carolina legal circles for decades, if not generations. Just, just I mean, I don't know where to start, but the background of the defendant, the um, how he got away with these financial crimes for so many years. The how proudly, really, the folks in Walterboro and the sheriff's office, clerk of court, city of Walterboro, the jurors, the judge conducted themselves, the witnesses. It was, uh, you know, the, the advocates on both sides. It, it, it had everything. And uh, I'm still not talking about all that it had, but evidentiary rulings on behalf of the judge that were extraordinary in lots of ways, had lots of... Um, Legal implications, the one thing uh, one of the prosecutors talked to me about, uh, I don't think he would mind uh, that I would be talking about it, but John Metters talked about how the electronic evidence that was produced in this trial, that he would have gotten away with it as soon as, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, 
but also how this might impact cases going forward because you would have that CSI effect where jurors might not, might now expect, well, it could be a ran, run of the mill B and E auto here in Charleston County. Well, where, how, what's the OnStar data say? So that could have a perhaps a negative effect because the, to produce that kind of evidence takes time, money, and effort. So it could not be done or will not be done in the routine case. But defense lawyers may may be able to argue, where is it? They had that Nimrodal trial. So. These sorts of things that I think uh, could have effects for, for generations. Is there a way for us to find out how much this all cost? Like for the prosecution to put together? Oh, that's a great sort of... case. I don't think, now, I think you told me, Drew, but you know, we had the 600000 that was taken from the retirement counts of uh, Alec Murdoch that, uh, in other words, this, as I recall, the receivers got, you know, typically you couldn't get retirement money because it's protected by federal law, but they made an agreement that you can keep X of this retirement money, we take the rest. Okay. And so you kept, I want to say 600000 So I'm assuming that was the the beginning part of the defense. Uh, I was going to say, like, the first, like, experts and, and hours logged and billed and... Yeah, we don't know. You know, it's a matter of uh, privilege. I don't know if they want to disclose that. And who knows? It could have been, they could have taken it with the understanding that, hey, um, we would like to get further payment, but if you can't, we're in it to the, for the end. I often had that question asked of prosecuting cases on the state side, and hear me out on this because it's a little bit of a convoluted answer, but it's sort of like the military. You know, we have a military budget, and they're like fixed costs mm-hmm. out there. So if these jets weren't flying around Charleston, what would they otherwise be doing? You still would be spending the money. It's been appropriated. So I think to a large degree, you could say that the cost of prosecution has already been appropriated into the attorney general's budget. It's, ra- it's rather a decision of alloc- uh, how you allocate those resources. And we okay. talked about that going forward. So they would have allocated, obviously, okay. priority to this, but it had been in their budget to begin with. So they're not able, if they're <laughs> in court in Walterboro, they're not prosecuting other people because they right. can't. They're you know, in Walterboro. But you probably could get a figure from them on what the experts cost and what the hard cost would be which I think would be really a small percentage of the actual overall cost. Well, and just the sweat equity. Yes. On something like this. Yes. The blood, sweat, and tears yes. that went into just yes. trying to they get through this marathon. Yeah, they marathon. definitely put the effort in. I, I must say, we saw it firsthand with them going to court each day early, and you could see that they thought about it over the weekend. They had planning sessions, and that's just what we saw for the six weeks. I'm certain that the months leading up to it, there were just hours and hours and hours of both police work, investigative work, and uh, prosecution work. So it was, um, I thought, a very impressive performance uh, by both sides, but particularly by the state of South Carolina. I thought they brought their, their A-plus game. We could always sort of critique and talk about, well, Creighton asked too many open-ended questions on cross-examination. But you know, if you sat there for six weeks, I just thought it was the majesty of the South Carolina legal system here. You had a very prominent attorney that was sitting in the dock, so to speak. He was sitting there being prosecuted for double homicide. So mm-hmm. he was, you know, it was, I felt equal justice. You know, I've seen many folks sitting there that didn't have the resources that he had, but he was sitting there. He didn't get out of it. They were prosecuting for, and it wasn't an easy case. I mean, it was a circumstantial evidence case, not what I would call a slam dunk. So the state of South Carolina decided that they were going to go in there full bore, and they did. And it turned out the way uh, I think if you saw the evidence, I think the you know truth has a way of sort of coming up from the ground in a courtroom. 
and I felt like as the weeks went on, the, the truth of the matter actually surfaced there, and it, it came to fruition in the unanimous verdict. Drew, what, have you had a chance to start kind of uh, marinating over what we just went through? My mind has more, I think, been preoccupied over what's next. Mm, um, me too. And all the loose threads and different things that we've still got to get into uh, with this case. And, and he's, as we've already talked a little bit about, Alex still facing 99 state, mm -hmm. you know, state, it might even be more now uh, with the tax evasion charges he got though, right before the trial. Uh, but no, all, that was 99. That with made the tax it 99. Yeah. Um, Is that right? Okay. So uh, it, all these financial crimes that we've got to get into and adjudicate, uh, there's, is he going to plea out on these? Is he going to go to trial? What, what's, what's going to happen there? Um, and we have, of course, uh, thinking about the appeal and, and they have 10 days to file the mm -hmm. notice of the appeal and then how long before we get the actual appeal and what they're, we're at, we mm -hmm. probably feel pretty confident what their appeal is going to say. And there's, it's all, there, there's a roadmap here of, it's not clear yet, but it's years in the making of what we're probably still going to see with, with respect to Alec, uh, and not just Alec. Uh, we still have the state prosecutions of Corey Fleming and uh, Russell Lafitte. Uh, just yesterday, uh, we had Judge Richard Gerbel, uh, U.S. District Judge in federal court. He denied Russell Lafitte's attorney's request for an evidentiary hearing and on a retrial. And so it was denied the retrial for Russell Lafitte after he was found guilty in November on all six charges related to bank and wire fraud conspiracy uh, involving Alec Murdoch, although Alec hasn't been charged in any federal case yet. Uh, he was heavily involved. I joked with John Monk from the state newspaper early in that trial. Is Alec wasn't on trial in back in November, but you would have never known it from how often his mm -hmm. name came up in it. Um, uh, that's that's where my head is going. Um, and, uh, however, uh, I we can't move on just yet from this one because there's still a lot of unanswered questions with the actual trial, which is part of what we're doing here today. And the, all those, you know, Easter eggs and teasers and, uh, you know, things that like, they went nowhere. Like we got little tidbits and was there ever any resolution? And we're going to try and get to some of that today. Great. Well, you know, it, and I think that um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, I was just listening to um, the ABC and the Today Show also had an opportunity to speak to some of the jurors. And we are certainly going to be uh, going towards that same goal as well um, over the next weeks. One thing that I was hearing that I thought was so interesting was why they decided that um, Alec Murdoch was guilty. And it sounds like he seriously created the most damage was through his own testimony. And of course, the lying with the kennel video is mm -hmm. what I was hearing right. from just a small smattering of the mm -hmm. jurors. We've mm -hmm. only heard, I think, mm -hmm. I think we've only heard from four right. yeah. so far. Uh, yeah, and the crime scene visit, I think that and the crime it? scene visit didn't mm -hmm. do him any favors, and of course that was a defense's decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really wanted that one, didn't they? Uh, 
having sat there for six weeks, I think the three things that you just mentioned, I did think there were seminal moments, and I thought they were very powerful. I don't know how you ever could get past that kennel video. Mm. And of course, the way he tried to get past it almost made it worse, his explanation, didn't you think? It's like, well, I had this paranoia I think paranoid that the jurors feeling, agreed with you. I, yeah, it was... And then when he testified, I thought he started off okay in the direct, and it looked like the first day of cross-examination didn't get to him. But I think by the second day, I think I may have sent a tweet out about this, that he had zero credibility. I mean, he, right. anything he said, you could just not count on. Because he, he, wow, the amount of times I heard that word lie, I, had to be over, I think we talked about it over 100 times, and he admitted he was a liar. You know, we need times. to go in our court transcript. I think that we're going to be looking for the word stole. Mm -hmm. He stole it. Alex mm -hmm. stole it. Alex stole it. Alex stole mm -hmm. it. That was Jenny Sackinger. Oh, yeah, Alex wow. stole it. And the lying, mm -hmm. I think lie, you could probably find that word 10,000 times. Yeah, in this. it was quite, it was very, very powerful, wasn't it? And it then, was powerful enough to keep yeah. the jurors. And I also thought, having been there too, I think the jurors may have seen this as well. He seemed like he was had a little vim and vigor to him on the first day. But by the end of it, by that, was it eight hours of cross-examination? At least. I mean, we, I think we said that somewhere around 14 hours is, you know, the total, the grand total of how long yeah. he was yeah. coming in and out and mm -hmm. with breaks right. figured in. Yeah, and, and I think the jurors kind of felt like his tears became crocodile tears, so to speak. And he, um, he looked different, didn't he? He looked very gaunt and he looked, he, he looked, sort of, I hate to say it this way, but he looked like a murderer, possibly. He just looked, had that, not a good look after, after that, so. Hardened. That, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of hardened. Well, Drew, do we have some questions? Well, I'll get to the one we got. We'll start with the one we got the most, uh, which is, did Alec actually have a $12 million life insurance policy or policies uh, totaling $12 million, as was referenced by Dick Carpootlian and Jim Griffin in the initial SLED interview after the roadside shooting in September 2021? It was referenced in trial, but kind of left open-ended and to that point we we aren't 100 percent sure and now i'll say first i've reached out to the attorney general's office trying to ask that very question and let me you know while we're sitting here let me check my email to make sure i haven't gotten a response i don't think i'm going to get a response on that and here's why <laughs> the answer to that i believe would be relevant to the 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 still pending charges and trial for the roadside shooting and the insurance fraud and all that. That's an open investigation. I doubt we're gonna get any official sources commenting on that to tell us whether he actually did. And that could all come out in trial or come out further uh, pretrial motions thing and responses to motions the, the way it did with this trial. However, I did reach out to a, an attorney who would know uh, or would be more in the know than Joe Blow off the street. That would be Mark Tinsley. Uh, and asked him that today. is like, hey, did, did you know in the discovery process, any everything that was ever turned over to you or that you saw or you heard about, did you ever find any record of twelve million dollars in life insurance? And he did not. That wow. was that was Mark Tinsley's answer. Not to his knowledge, there was not twelve million dollars in life insurance. So, and we had been told <laughs> before trial that there was not it, there were not any life insurance policies on Maggie or Paul specifically. So th this, this leads into uh, a lot of uh, like spider web, like a, a window 
piece of glass shattering and all the spider webbing and all the little rivulets and things that branch out and where, where you could go with that question. One being, well, what then, uh, one that I saw posed, I think relevant to that would be the estate of Alex's father, uh, Randolph III. Rand, uh, and mm-hmm. if Alec knew or had a pretty good idea that, and I, this had occurred to me before, um, Which and again, I don't want to. I don't want to speculate here. I'm not a criminal. I don't know how to think like a criminal. <laughs> Just at least uh, not that I'm uh, not that you all are aware of. <laughs> yeah. uh, at least uh, anyway. Jokes aside, if Alec knew his like he knew that his father was dying, and that that is going to dry up at least one of his funding sources because he, he, he was able to still go borrow money from his dad, right? Uh, he knew that his dad was about to die and he wouldn't be able to access that money by any means, uh, at least for a year to the probate process. What if that was one of the catalysts to, as the jury has decided and found him guilty of, what if that, one of that, that was one of the catalysts to murder his to murder Maggie and Paul. At the same time, dad's about to die. If I go ahead and do this now, I'll be all set in about a year to get all this money and I can keep, you know, kicking the can, and that kind of fits with the state's motive is kicking the can down the road. I thought about this might fit into what you're talking about because there's a, there's if Maggie and Paul are dead, I don't know if they had wills or whether they were intestate, he would stand to inherit from them. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I think most states have similar laws. There's a sta- state statute that says if, you're, if you murder the person, you can't inherit their money. Right. So he had more riding on the case than maybe just the... Because um, I do think the financial crimes are such where the likelihood of him spending the rest of his life in prison is high anyway. Right. So that may argue as to why he went to the max, so to speak, on these murder charges. It didn't seek a universal resolution of everything, including maybe, you know, he could have he could have pled guilty. There's a case called Alford versus North Carolina where the U.S. Supreme Court decided this was a capital case, but it's used routinely in criminal court. You can go into court and say, I'm innocent. I didn't do this, but the evidence is so overwhelming, I'm going to plead guilty to it, and the judge can accept that plea. So that was another possible way to resolve this and still save face with his family. Didn't do any of that. So... That you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's right. I think it's appropriate commentary to think about these monies flowing through from his father and then from Maggie and Paul. And uh, I don't know what as I said the size of their estates are going to be, but there there will be certainly something to that. Well, sure. I mean, and you know the. The estates now, all of this money, what's the situation right now? It's all frozen. They're, everything is, all assets are frozen as of right now. There is no money to be had, even for Buster. Well, I think that that part of the, that part has been resolved with Buster. Mm-hmm. I think he is, he may still be under the receivership. I don't mm-hmm. It was a half no. million, wasn't it? That he got I think he was able to walk with a half a million. Mm-hmm. Right, which is... But I, during the whole last couple of years, yes. or last year, I would say last year, that money's been frozen. Has it? Been, mm-hmm. has it? Yeah. So he From hasn't actually I gotten it. I think he should be getting it yeah. now, Does he have but to that was to be able to get away. Legal fee out of that, or do we know if there's a legal fee due? 
It's a great question. So he may not I'm net sure. the full half million, but right. But yeah, you know, aren't there a lot of questions here as we go forward? Uh, there's and, so many. And questions. I do think the, the big policy question with the Attorney General of South Carolina is: Do you prosecute the remaining cases fully? You pick and choose some, or do you do none of them and wait for the appeals to uh, to occur? So. We'll see what happens. I, I would think from a policy standpoint, he would want to take into account the cost of prosecution. But also, I mean, some of those cases is that, like the Tony Satterfield case, mm -hmm. really, when you hear, the, wow, when you hear what happened to him. Well, and, and you know, we did, case. we did have a chance to, or I had a chance to have a brief conversation with Eric Bland today, mm -hmm. who is representing mm -hmm. Tony and his brother Brian um, in this Satterfield case. And I'm going to be speaking with him tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, more about what is to come. But they absolutely, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, Charlie, is it sounds like they do want to file. They do want to go forward with this case, uh, with the, the Satterfield. The criminal case. Um, that's, well, I, I think I think for Eric Bland as a civil attorney, I think he's mm. going to be looking at at um, the the civil case as well. So I'm, I'm just trying to understand yeah, the what way, they can sure, what yeah. they can start moving on yeah, now. Does, this, sure. does getting this murder conviction give the other attorneys that are sort of lining up uh, for either civil cases um, does this give them more of an opportunity to move forward with their cases? Yeah, now that yeah, it really should because he, under oath, he admitted to lots of financial misdeeds. So you have that, and of course, he would have complete control of the civil how he handles that. The attorney general would have complete control on the prosecution of other cases. He does have to. I know a lot about this because when I ran for attorney general, part of my platform was to have a victim's bill of rights in the state constitution, it's there. So he does have to, um, it's passed, it's not easy to amend our state constitution, but it, it, we, we did it. So he does have to get input from the victims. He doesn't have to do what they say, but he has to get input. And it sounds like the clear input is going to be, we, we would like you to prosecute this case fully, which I think is a fair request given the, the gravity of the crime, even though you know, he's locked up presumably for life if these appeals hold up. So. You can't serve more than your natural life, but that appeal won't be decided for a year, and evidence does get out, you know, does does fade, although I think the evidence in that's going to stay pretty strong, but do you want to use some resources? The trial won't be six weeks. It'll be more like three days. Okay. So that does, I would think, argue for going forward on at least some of them. Well, and I think A.G. Wilson actually sent a tweeted out recently that he wanted to he wanted us to continue to remember the victims in this and that there are more victims right. um, that need justice. That was today, actually. That, that was today. Makes perfect sense. So that could be mm -hmm. foreshadowing sort of what we're going to see from the AG's mm -hmm. office, that they're not ready to... I, I don't blame him for that if he wants to. You know, the, There were two or three that really stuck out in my mind as to, wow, how could you do this to somebody? And he did. Alex admitted to it, so we're not speculating here. And if you want to... Hold him accountable for that. There's a way to do that with criminal court and to get further sentences on him. I think that may be an appropriate use of resource, even though you've got somebody who looks like, I think the appeal, I mean, there are issues there, but I think there's a harmless error analysis that could apply. Uh, but, you know, it's possible it could be reversed. He'll be facing another prosecution, I'm, I'm confident. So do you, how do you want to allocate your resources? But again, Creighton knows this case so well. I don't think the preparation time would be that much. And so you're looking at, a case that would be held certainly within a week. 
So it might make some sense to do one or two of them and you know, get, get those uh, convictions and have those in the, uh, in the appellate system. It would make sense. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Well, we just got some information through that um, Dick Harputlian, Senator Harputlian at the moment, yeah. has been making some comments about how he uh, says that Nimmin, um from what we're reading, that Nimmin made possibly some legal errors, which is part of the reason they plan to appeal. What do you think about that? Well, they've been really clear on that they feel like the financial crime motive evidence shouldn't be, be admissible. But I did, I mean, as you sat there through six weeks of it, I remember there were a couple of times, I remember one time he excluded evidence, and then wasn't two hours later, they went right into it on cross-examination, and the judge, I forget what the, how he said it, but it was very, very uh, right. touching language, very good language, but building a bridge over to where... Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the road, and then you just built a road to go over the bridge, right over the bridge to keep and, on yeah, going. Yeah, and I told you, you know, I allowed you not to go across it. So I think... I think the way that's going to play out on appeal, that's going to be their main issue. The appellate, another interesting sort of fact on this is, you know, typically in South Carolina, the prosecutions are, are the cases are prosecuted by the local circuit solicitor. And the appeals are handled by the attorney general's office. Well, here you get the cases prosecuted by the attorney general's office, and the appellate division will handle the appeal. And so they can just walk right down the hallway, like what happened in court, and have people right there to tell them, which is very unusual. Uh, I remember I used to, Don Zalika used to handle my uh, capital appeals, and you know, he'd read the record, but he, he would talk sometimes. He'd have some questions. Well, this is an easy one. They're, they're all right there. Don's right there. And so I do think the, um, the argument's going to go something like this. And there'll be briefings uh, on both sides, but the briefing will be horrible, what Judge Newman did. This is inflammatory. It wasn't allowed. And their counter brief's going to be, it is allowed. It's proper to prove motive. He instructed the jury at least three to four times, I think. They only considered it for that. And none of these jurors, by the way, and they're in the, for what it's worth department, this typically isn't allowed on, on as part of the record. But jurors, when they're talking about it, they aren't saying we were so inflamed by the financial crimes that we convicted them. They're, they're talking about the actual evidence of, of the murders, aren't they, and, and the reasons for a conviction. So on the face of it, they did follow the instructions. But having said all that, I'm confident AG's office is going to say, even if he did make an error, it's harmless error given the weight of the evidence against him and also the fact that the defense themselves went down these roads in their cross-examinations and their questioning. And so we would ask that it be uh, affirmed on appeal. Five uh, justices on the Supreme Court takes three to affirm it. And we should know, I would think this case, I would think they'd give it a little bit of a priority. They never tell you their scheduling, but I would think we would hear with a year, a year and a half on this uh, as their decision. In the meantime, he'll be and this will be interesting to watch, too. He went through reception evaluation at Kirkland. Uh, the Department of Corrections says they're going to follow their guidelines and assign him to a uh, maximum security prison. But I still have to think the Director Sterling is going to be looking at the safety issue for him. I would think that would be something that... So he may be in one of these maximum security prisons, but the sub-question the sub -question or the sub-topic um, here might be, okay, he's in there, but do you have him in a special cell? So I would think they would say that if they're going to do that, because, again, I think given the 
the nature of the defendant, the high, pro the high uh, profile here in the crimes and the financial crimes, I just think he's at risk, personally. Be... Yeah, and there's, we can't discount the fact that we've heard these, the names of some street gangs thrown out there at different points during oh, yeah, the trial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> different, different points during all this. Um, mm -hmm. So, And Eddie yeah. Smith's kind of faded away, hasn't he? He's given a couple of interviews that didn't seem to be that credible, right? But he's faded away in this case, hasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. To, to Dick Harpootlin's point, um, where in trial he where he said he was essentially salivating over the chance to get Eddie Smith on the witness stand right. and said he's told no less than six stories. Um, he got in an interview with ABC 2020 um, this a couple of weeks ago, and that they they've aired it already, I believe. Eddie said he told another story. Told, told uh, a, a totally different, new story. To, to, different again about what happened with the roadside shooting, uh, and uh, it, it not credible. Uh, not at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, switching gears a little bit. Um, well, we'll yeah. Let's get back to answering some questions. One of the one of the main ones we main ones we've gotten are more about these loose threads or dead ends that kind of went nowhere. Um, I think one would certainly be the Gucci receipt, which has been <laughs> was somewhat of a uh, comical uh, point. Um, Tell them what the Gucci receipt is, uh, if, well, if people just don't remember. The, the, day after the, the day after the murders, when SLED was searching the property at, there at the Murdoch's home in the Moselle area, they found in the trash can some empty cartridge boxes, some rifle cartridge boxes, and they found a shredded up receipt. And on the receipt, I think it was a credit card statement, on, the, on that receipt was a circled entry for a purchase at the Gucci store in Charleston. Mm -hmm. And they made sure to mention it at the time. And like, like they were somewhat making a, a point out of what we were seeing in there. And they just never followed up on it. But, but uh, they, they, I guess we'll, we'll never know until, you know, we keep <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there we'll find out something on the later. Another one that a lot of people want to know about that we didn't ever get any real resolution on. Um, I, I get maybe we did, but but didn't, uh, which would speak to the defense's case was, I believe it was Detective Laura Rutland for the Colton County Sheriff's Office testified when she was observing Maggie Murdoch's body. She noticed some hairs in Maggie's her hand, in, in, like on her hand or in her hand. Um, and I think they also noted uh, other uh, other people who reviewed the crime scene and re re reviewed autopsy photos noticed there was also hair on other parts of her body, uh, and that was suggested that yeah, could have been point. from her. Yeah, from I was her wounds. you kind of surprised her crime scene expert didn't get into that? Like, yeah. I think it's just uh, you know just Can reprehensible they didn't. You I had a speculation on this. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm speculating. Well, but she had just been messing with the dogs for like. A while right. grabbing the dogs trying to get a chicken out of the dog's mouth yeah. helping with all of this this happened we know now right. within minutes and these are dogs that shed 
all over the place. Like when I grab my dog. Oh, you think it's dog hair? I don't know. They never said if it was a like a, a yeah. human hair or yeah. dog hair. Yeah. And then it just went away. Yeah. I mean, it may be yeah. ridiculous, but yeah. so is the idea that there's a clumpful yeah. of somebody's human hair. I just thought the hair, hair with, remember the DNA in her fingernails? I just thought I'd and hear a lot DNA. of the combination. Like that's the, why didn't they exclude? I don't know. I just thought that was a pretty good issue. I didn't hear the crime scene person too. get on that very much. Yeah. That's so, why I'm speculating. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, we don't know the answer. I, I yeah. mean, it, we're in the same boat as all of you listening and watching it with that. It, you know, they, for all we know, I don't believe they tested it. And yeah. that's, a, again, yeah. back to yeah. the defense's theory and the, the, they tried to put SLED on trial and um, for their for their alleged yeah. failures. And wasn't that interesting how Chief Keel handled all that, I thought, with his press. He didn't took no questions. And he, he, it was sort of a victory lap, wouldn't you say, press conference? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And he wanted to kind of back up his, and they're all standing up there, but no questions. Yeah. And you, I know what you would have asked him. And, mm -hmm. and have you learned from this, or are you making changes? And I, I got to think that they they did learn, and they are making changes, but he didn't want to talk, he didn't offer a chance to talk about that. I mean, there's just a huge hole in this investigation with that T-shirt, with the blood spatter evidence. Yeah, that you was were on that on early. I remember you asked me about that months ago, and um, I, frankly, as the trial progressed, I was really surprised how that was missed by the state so badly, mm -hmm. because it wasn't blood spatter on there. And well, because there wasn't blood found on there. Yeah, it was probably fish blood, right, as experts said. And then the uh, the fact that, that that actually, I thought, made the case stronger, that they were going with the, as Attorney Griffin called it, the clean shirt theory, that you know, he put on clean clothes and got rid of the mm -hmm. blood, blood spattered clothes. That made more sense to me time-wise anyway. But they went down that path, I guess, for months and months, right? Mm -hmm. Wrongly. Until oh, they absolutely. unlocked Paul's phone. <laughs> well, and then they destroyed the T-shirt. Mm-hmm. With the LCV, yeah, by examining the, the leukocrystal yeah. violet yeah. Yeah. substance. Yeah. So that this was what concerned me the most, honestly. And I still, we just haven't had a chance to talk about it. But the fact that the, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that meant that the defense could not examine that T-shirt because it was destroyed or quote unquote destroyed by the, the work that was done in the SLED crime lab. And I don't. That's Again, I don't understand why that just got... Yeah, that's a good point. They could have made a big deal about having destroyed it by chasing the wrong theory, mm -hmm. proving to be wrong, that they then didn't allow the state to, I mean, the defense to examine it to help find the real killer. That's not bad. Why didn't the defense bring that into... They could have brought that into as an exhibit, yeah, right? Yeah, again, I, I was... Again, I would have brought to, that in. Yeah, and, it's easy to second-guess these things. Right, I, I was going to say. I, would you say this is fair? I want. To, I think they're terrific attorneys. I didn't have a theme of defense, right? It was more like the day. Let's jump on this, and then the next two or three days, it kind of changed a little bit. It didn't seem like an overarching theme. Did you catch one from the defense? Just a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. We're yeah. going to keep on keeping this guy yeah. in the circle. We don't yeah. have anybody else. Yeah. It, you know, it's always the dad that did it. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to stick with that story, and we're going to make it work. Right. That was the theme that I right. heard. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Max has a question. Max, mm, do you have a question for us? Yeah, some people recently saw that uh, Randy Murdoch has done an interview. What are your thoughts on that? So I can I can speak to this one just a little bit in case yeah. you haven't in case you haven't seen uh -huh. it. Uh, Randy Murdoch has spoken to a reporter from the New York Times, uh, Nick Nick Bogleboros. Uh, he is uh, he was the 
southeastern region reporter for the New Is York Times. Right? How do you pronounce his last name? Bogle Burroughs. He says a hyphenated last I name. Um, he, uh, Nick was Nick was here throughout the trial covering it. He was it. embedded, yeah. Yeah, along with all of us, and he had the uh, from from our standpoint, uh, he had uh, from, uh, as far as people who we'd all like to talk to, he had the good fortune to uh, speak to Randy Murdoch, um, and he went out to Randy's place and spent the afternoon with him and spoke to him, and it was in stark contrast to what somewhat the portrait painted by the defense after the after the verdict and the sentencing on Friday and the family now believes more than ever that he's innocent and there, and this has proven well if you read what Nick wrote that's not so much the case um, from Randy uh, right from Randy yeah. and, and I'll, I'll pull a quote here um, Again, I don't want to try and give, give away uh, this whole story, but just reading off my computer, uh, Randy, according to Nick, said he knows more than what he's saying. This is Randy Murdoch speaking. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. And that's, that's with respect to the murders. And that's his own brother saying this. I also learned from this interview with The Times that uh, Randy says he hasn't spoken to Alec more than a year. And I, I think it was notable in in the jailhouse phone calls. You remember this, it seems like a lifetime ago, but right. about, about this time a year ago, uh, February and March of That's 2022, right. is when we were all foying uh, News and the Murdoch Murders podcast had gotten the, uh, the initial round of jailhouse phone calls, and we all said, you know what? going to do that too and we got we got uh, a, a few more and a few more and everybody else started FOIA in those and that led uh, federal court laws uh, files for injunction all this stuff but some of those did end up getting released and in those jailhouse calls you never heard Randy or John Marvin Liz Lynn Buster uh, yeah, you didn't hear Randy. You didn't That's hear Randy. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, he also didn't go to the court that much, right? He was probably there, what, half he was a not, time to a third? He was not there. He wasn't there, there at the, the verdict, read or the sentencing mm -hmm. is what I mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. noted. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know who I also noted was the brand setters weren't there. Yeah, right. and that was a question we got. And um, the, we can also speculate that. But just before we go to that, or, or not, I don't want to say speculate no, no. on that, but before we go to that, uh, your thoughts, two of your thoughts on Randy and... Him. Well, what I thought was so powerful, what Nick was able to report on was that he said that, um, you know, his brother said to him, I'm never going to lie again. I'm never lying again to you. This is it. And then he turned around and he lied. Like he said, within what? Just days. Days. Maybe the next he day. said, I'll never lie to you again. This is during that Labor Day sh uh, roadside shooting. Right. And then he turned around and lies about how he got shot right. on the side of the road yeah. and someone was after yeah. him. So. Yeah. I think his credibility with his brother uh, by the reporting, by the way that story was told, and I don't know how out of context it is, but that I would assume that that would be a very strong reason why Alex's credibility went out the window on at that point. Or at least Randy, especially since he's suing his brother, right? Mm -hmm. He's got Randy's right. got to sue him to get his. He's got to be in line to get that money. Yeah. Um, so yes. there's just a lot of. Mm -hmm. Whew, a lot of places where he just needs to stay very clear for his family. And um, as sad as I think it is for the entire Murdoch family, 
to go through this. I think Randy, especially as a law partner, must feel. Well, yeah, I actually really respected. I thought his much more nuanced comments to the New York Times reporter spot on versus, I mean, that press conference where it was represented the family became more convinced than ever mm -hmm. that he was innocent. And I'm like, went, Am I, really? was I in the same courtroom for six weeks? I mean, I, and I thought the way Randy phrased it, he had respect for the jury verdict. He still had questions. He wasn't saying he was completely sure his brother was guilty of murder, but he was more nuanced. I thought that was an appropriate tone given the evidence I saw. By the way, I should mention on appeal too, just to add this other ground beside the harmless error, they're also going to argue very forcefully that the defense waived it by going down these different paths on the financial crime. So if we're still around, I'd like to cover that one because that you can go to court in Columbia, their Supreme Court, and hear the arguments back and forth. It'll be live streamed, I'm sure, but that'll be a really good argument. Uh, but wait, tell me, tell me what it's a Supreme Court happened. argument. I would think they would take this one, and uh, you know, we can go court okay. of appeals, and then U.S. Supreme, then state Supreme Court. I don't know the different rules on like how you jump to the Supreme Court, but I think eventually the, our Supreme Court. It has the evidentiary questions are too there. I mean, they're just really, uh, and it did result, I think, in uh, a, certainly a, a possibility of, of why he was convicted. So I think we'll, at some point in time, we're going to have televised oral arguments, whoever's representing him on appeal and whoever's got the state appeal, and that should be fascinating someday. And the Court of Appeals might hear it, then goes to the state Supreme Court. I think that is also uh, maybe the existing rules. I'm not quite sure about that. But my point is, this case is not over. Right. Charlie, what, um, and, and I, did, I did see this. <laughs> I, did, I saw this question specifically. Uh, can you speak at all, I, I, and I, I'm sure you don't have the statistics off the top of your head, maybe you do, but what percentage of, I guess in your experience, of, not just capital cases, but I guess murder cases in general, what is the, I guess, success rate on appeal? Uh, mm. of, like they're all going to get appealed. Low. Low. <laughs> Low. I can say it without reservation because typically the proof, the actual cases that go to trial for murder, uh, you know, the state decides who to prosecute, right? And so they typically will have very strong cases that are. And so if you're sitting in the, uh, I feel, I mean, we have great appellate lawyers on the indigent side, and so they do a great job. And so they get convicted, they're going to take their appeal and do their best they can with it. Now, having said that, the more, I mean, the circumstantial evidence cases often, or they have evidentiary questions, you will get these court of appeals slash Supreme Court opinions that are quite interesting. And so those do get uh, sort of highlighted. But... Your run-of-the-mill murder case, it doesn't result in much on the appellate side. It just doesn't. Other than the fact that, and other, I should mention this too, you know, the, you, you have the direct appeal to the state Supreme Court. They'll try and get on the federal side. Usually that goes nowhere. But the other thing that does happen, if you're sitting in a jailhouse cell after your appeals are denied on direct, you have one year to file what's called post-conviction relief. Mm -hmm. Now, that will be very interesting to see if, if he gets affirmed an appeal. Does Alex claimed that he had ineffective uh, representation by Dick and Jim. That is often... Well, and it, we've seen it many, many times mm -hmm. with really brilliant lawyers. Mm -hmm. I've heard this before. We've, we've mm -hmm. seen it before, so it wouldn't be mm -hmm. completely mm -hmm. out of the range. We have a little bit of time left. Right. Um, so I wanted to just get to maybe the heart of anything that you guys wanted to touch on. Um, 
I did want to bring up when you were talking about uh, Chief Justice Beatty overseeing, he's our South Carolina Supreme Court head mm -hmm. justice. Chief Justice. Uh -huh. He is the one that appointed Clifton Newman. It, hey, fan club <laughs> continues. Fan club Brilliant continue. appointment. In well, my personal opinion. So there's no conflict of interest for them to hear the appeal based on oh, the no. fact that that's his no. judge that he appointed. No, okay. no, because he's got to, I mean, all circuit judges are assigned and all these bigger cases they do assign. I haven't, I mean, <laughs> never say never. It's possible to <laughs> bring that. I haven't heard that one as a ground yet. Well, and also the, um, the fact that Judge Newman is... Uh, I think I, I think he's looking towards retirement. I could be wrong. I yeah, feel like I've heard that. Yeah, my understanding he's got to retire at age seventy-two. Right. So uh, how does he get so through ninety-nine a, crimes? So he is able. You are able to continue to hold court as a retired uh, judge. So I'm assuming they'll let him do that. Uh, I've got a couple minutes Perry, left. Perry so Buckner uh, told me uh, he he mm -hmm. a case he tried a case. Back in mm -hmm. July of last year, mm -hmm. he said, "Circuit Judge Carlton, yeah, yeah." Uh -huh. so, and he told me it was on his, it was on his mm -hmm. case roster before he retired, so he had to see it. So they yeah. called him back to see it through. Okay, is, sure. that, is that generally? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. They, they I mean, once it's on, them. once it's assigned mm -hmm. to you, unless it's yours, yeah. Right. So I, I, th I think Judge Newman is probably here for the long haul. One thing that we very momentarily touched on was the fact that we did that people wanted to know about was that we didn't see. Anyone from the Brandstetter family, anyone from yeah. Maggie's family. Yeah, and I should mention this too. I think this is worthy of discussion as to why this wasn't a capital case. Well, you know, your typical capital case, I've been there many a time, you have, you have family members mm -hmm. really pushing for prosecution and wanting justice, and that did not exist in this case, mm -hmm. did it? The family members that were there wanted a not guilty verdict. Yeah. And the proctors did show up briefly, but they weren't sitting there. And so it does... You were there. It creates an uh, it creates an ambience in that courtroom. So jurors look around. So if there's no family members, I think it would have made it more difficult. Even though I think it was not pushed because of the circumstantial proof issues that could have resulted. So as to why they weren't there, and I think they also didn't fill out a victim. I, I could be wrong about this, but I thought I heard they didn't fill out a victim impact statement. That's what I heard too. So they were out of the victim world. They were there subpoenaed to testify that she did her duty. I thought she came across very credibly, but I'm assuming there's just this desire to keep a relationship with Buster mm -hmm. and maybe not get crossways with the Murdochs. Right. I don't know that. I'm speculating, but uh, their family. And, you know, remember the testimony was that Alex lived with them for like months, right? Yeah. After the murders. So this was a very, very painful. So it must have been just so painful. And I will say it didn't make a difference in sentencing. I did think that was a double life uh, consecutive sentence that was coming regardless. So you didn't really need that oomph there. The proof of the, the crime itself provided that. So it may have been appropriate for them not to be there, but it's highly unusual, highly unusual. Well, I hate to say this, but we have to go. Um, we, we are going to have to run at this point. And is there, I literally, um, yes, we do have to go. Shoot, I could talk a lot longer to you guys about what's going on here. We have more. Uh, to do. We have a lot more to do. We've got a lot more people to talk to, and we're going to be bringing you um, clips of those interviews, and we'll be able to discuss that as well as sort of looking ahead um, to what 99 crimes. Wow. There's it's a lot 99 there. Crimes, so it'll right? be interesting wow. to hear what a few of these attorneys are going to have to say very soon. Thank you for joining us for yet another live. Um, 
recap of the Murdoch trial, uh, sort of in the aftermath of this whole thing. And we've got a lot more to parse out for you. So thank you so much on behalf of myself, Charlie Condon, Drew Tripp, Max Harrison, and Sam Griswold over there, making sure we're, we're doing everything right here. So thanks so much. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.